Welcome to the new Max Bernier Show. I have been asked by many people to be more active on YouTube, not just Twitter and Facebook. It takes time and preparation to do a show like this one, and I did not have any time before the election. Now that I'm not a member of parliament anymore, I will be devoting all my time to promoting the People's Party. This will be a rigorous show to keep in touch with all of you PPC supporters and anyone interested in Canadian politics. I will try to have a show once a week. We will discuss current political events, interview some interesting people, and yes, answer questions from you. Please subscribe to the People's Party of Canada official YouTube channel and don't hesitate to write your comments. Uh, for example, I would love to hear your suggestions if there are any particular guests you would like to see on the show. A question that keeps coming up is, Max, why don't you run again for the leadership of the Conservative Party? <laughs> I stayed 15 months after the last race and I realized that the Conservative Party's establishment is not interested in our ideas. They are morally and intellectually corrupt. All their policies are based on polls and anti-buzzwords. They are not interested in debating the important issues in Canada today from a free market conservative perspective. Andrew Scheer moved the party to the centre-left to take votes away from the Liberals. That's why I left and I founded the PPC. There is very little difference now between the Liberal and the Conservative parties. It won't be any different with a new leader. When he launched his campaign, Aaron O'Toole attacked the frontrunner Peter Mickey and said he would turn the CBC into a liberal party light. <laughs> But it's already that. <laughs> I have no wish to go back and fight the party's establishment. We need a party that is not afraid to tackle the important issues. Yes, we got only 1.6% of the vote last October, But that's 300,000 Canadians who supported the PPC. That's a lot of people. It took the Green Party 20 years and six elections to have more than that. It takes a long time to establish a new party. Many Canadians still don't know about us. I don't know how long it will take for the PPC to elect MPs, but If we want our ideas to have an influence, we must fight for them. We must defend them. We must defend our principle openly, with passion and with conviction. I invite all the disappointed conservatives who want the real conservative ideas to be debated, real conservative policies, to join us at the PPC. Come with us. We are the only conservative that will fight for real conservative values. Yes, I said conservative because we believe in individual freedom, personal responsibility, respect, and fairness. And there's huge difference between us and the fake conservative. Huge difference. First, we can speak about, uh, you know, immigration. We're the only party, want to, uh, the only party that want to lower 
the immigration level and having more economic immigrants. And we are ready to be sure that we'll stop the illegal migrants crossing the border in Quebec. We need to have a discussion on immigration, but the conservative won't speak about that. We are the only party who will balance the budget in two years. And also we are saying to Canadians how we will do it. We will, first of all, as you may know, cut the CBC. We can save more than $1 billion there. We will also end corporate welfare. That's another $5 billion over there. It's not fair to tax a small business entrepreneur in Montreal or in Toronto and forcing him or her to pay these taxes and giving that to Bombardier, GM or SNC-Lavalin. We must stop that and having a policy that will be fair for every entrepreneur. So yes, by lowering tax to every single entrepreneur in this country, we can do that and we can save $5 billion. We can save another $5 billion to stop foreign aid. Justin Trudeau is traveling right now in Africa and is buying votes with your money to be sure to have a seat at the UN Security Council. We know that the UN is a dysfunctional organization. We won't fight for having a seat at the UN. We will bring that money back here in Canada to help Canadians first, to put our country first. We won't sign the Global Compact on Migration. We will write our immigration policy here in Canada by Canadians for Canadians. We won't sign the Paris Accord Agreement. And we won't impose new regulations or taxes on businesses to fight climate change because there's no climate emergency. We will let that to provinces. You know, if a province wants to fight climate change, they can do that at the provincial level, but not at the federal level. But the conservative, they will do it. Scheer said that it will do it and the new leader will do the same thing. Yes, they will have a new leader in a couple of months from now. That will be only a new face, a new face on a centrist party that will do everything to buy votes, like the liberals. So if you want a real change in this country, look at our platform, come with us at the People's Party of Canada. Don't hesitate. You know, look at our platform. We have a real platform for a more prosperous and a freer country. Thank you. Hi everyone, today we're going to talk about deficit, debt, interest rate and how the world economy is still fragile despite or perhaps because of a decade of stimulus policies by governments and central banks. I know this is not a very sexy topic for many people, but it could have a major impact on your life. We could soon uh, experience another recession or a major, major financial crisis perhaps worse than the one we had in 2008. If and when this happens, everyone will want to understand why and will be asking for solutions. So you should listen to this conversation if you want to know what, what is coming on, for the, on the economy right now, on our economy. My guest today is Philip Cross. He is someone who knows the Canadian economy inside out. He worked for 36 years at Statistics Canada including as Chief Economic Analyst. 
since his retirement from Statistics Canada, is even more busy writing research papers and articles for various organizations, including the Fraser Institute and the McDonald Laurie Institute. He is a frequent commentator on the economy in the media. Today, I want to discuss with him two very interesting papers in particular. The first came out a few days ago. It's about how Canada's soaring debt puts our economy at risk. The other one came out in 2016, but is even more relevant today. It is about how monetary and fiscal policies have sown the seeds of the next crisis. Philip, welcome to my show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Maxine. So I just want to start with your latest um, paper study that uh, was published a couple of days ago about uh, Canada's debt and deficit. Um, the Trudeau government is saying that uh, our national debt is under control. But what is the real uh, situation? Yeah. Well, the national debt, which includes the debt of all Canadians, is well over 300% of GDP. That's one of the highest in, in the world. Uh, corporations, such as Bombardier, for example, hold the most amount of debt of any country in the world. Households in Canada hold the second highest amount of debt in the world. Only Denmark has more debt. So to say that debt is under control looks at government in isolation. Their government, especially federal government, is relatively low compared to some other countries. But you have to look at the overall debt level. After all, all of this debt, whether it's household or corporate or government, is all being financed with one, the same income stream, which is GDP. So if the Canadian economy should experience a recession, if our export earnings decline sharply, for example, we're going to have difficulty uh, servicing all that debt, no matter how much of it is just government. We have to support a, a great deal of debt. Yeah. So uh, in your study, you're saying, and uh, I think your research shows that it's about 300% of the GDP altogether when you add uh, household, corporations, non-financial corporations, and governments, federal and provincial governments. So at 300%, it's one of the 300% of the GDP. It's one of the highest uh, amount of debts in the, the G7, G20 countries. And That's right. And it's actually relatively easy to remember. The debt is almost equally spread between these different sectors. Corporations have the most debt, as I said, at 118% of GDP. Households are a little over 100%. Governments are a little under 100%. But uh, an easy way to think of it is it's, it's relatively evenly distributed across these three major sectors. And all sectors have contributed to this. It's not a matter of, you know, uh, this sector is out of balance. Canadians as a whole have gone into debt heavily. It's not that surprising. After all, for 10 years now, the Bank of Canada has been running a policy of very low interest rates. They've basically been telling people, go into debt. It's good for the economy. And nobody talks about the risk and the vulnerabilities this creates for Canadians. So we are there right now because of the bad monetary and fiscal policies the last 10 years. So uh, can, you, can you explain, because we had the recession in 2008, as you know, the financial crisis. And after that, not only the federal government, but also other uh, governments uh, with their central banks, they were very um, uh, looking at uh, very easy monetary policies and also fiscal policies. So do you think it's because of 
what happened in the past with all that spending. And usually we're supposed to spend only during a recession. Right. And after that, for the long term, you're supposed to have policies that will be good for uh, private sector investment and, and more uh, structural reform at the federal level or, or the national level. So do you think that what happened after the crisis in 2008, the financial crisis, and when you said in your paper that's the beginning of the next crisis, so that's why we are so, what is the 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 negative impact of all these uh, deficit and monetary stimulus? Well, the, the negative impact is that we have tried to stimulate growth with these policies in the short term, but in fact, they didn't work. In fact, if you look at GDP growth per capita over the last 10 years, we've had the worst decade we've had since the 1930s. Uh, so in fact, we, we went into a debt, we brought forward a lot of spending through lower interest rates to create growth, and in fact, it didn't work. So what we ended up doing is we've taken on a great deal of debt. We've created very little income. We don't have a lot to show for this debt. Mm. And so we were much more vulnerable going into the next downturn because we have this overhang of debt and very low growth coming out of the last downturn. We didn't use this money well to strengthen our economy, to boost fundamental factors that drive growth in the long term, such as productivity, such as innovation. Uh, instead, we've created uh, a lot of bubbles in the housing market. We've created a lot of debt related to housing. We have uh, created a lot of government debt. And as I say, we don't have a lot to show for it. It's not like we invested this in oil and gas or we invested this in government infrastructure. Uh, we mostly use this debt to buy groceries. That's never a good recipe in economics. Oh, my God. So what you're saying is right now the situation is worse than it was uh, before the recession in 2008 because of all these debts and corporate households and governments. Right. So uh, the solution that governments and, and, and central banks are using to stimulate the economy, at the end, it was not, uh, it was not stimulating the economy. I think it is more uh, sedative to the economy. Uh, so what do you think... Um, what do you think uh, will happen in, in because central banks right now, the interest rate is almost at 0%, 1-0%. So they don't have a lot of tools in, in their toolbox to react if we have a recession soon. What do you think will be the policy that the Bank of Canada and other uh, central bank will use if we have a recession in a couple of months or years from now? Well, the Bank of Canada is already talking about as the global economy slows, the Bank of Canada has already raised the possibility that they'll cut interest rates yet again, which fails to acknowledge that, you know, we have pursued this policy of low interest rates and then of a lower exchange rate. Remember, not too long ago, as recently as 2014, we were at parity with the U.S. dollar. Yeah. The Bank of Canada encouraged a rapid devaluation to 75 cents, and we've basically been hovering around 75 cents since then. That was supposed to stimulate exports didn't happen. In fact, you can see the bank in its research is spending a lot of time trying to understand why didn't manufacturing exports respond to the lower dollar? Uh, it's, so it's, it's one of a number of variables that is not behaving in the way that economists expected. We expected low unemployment rate, for example, to bid up uh, inflation. It's called the Phillips curve. Yeah. That relationship has broken down over the last 10 years. We expected the lower exchange rate to boost exports. That didn't work. So we have, you know, the economy is entering an, an era now or, or a, a space 
where a lot of things are not behaving the way economists expected. So uh, it's, it's not surprising that some of the old the traditional stimulative policies didn't work. A lot of different relationships that economists count on to help control the economy have not worked well. In fact, the relationships have deteriorated in recent years. So it's a real problem for the profession and unfortunately for Canadians. So do you think it's, it is um, like a little, bit what a little bit what happened in Japan the last 30 years? Uh, the Japanese government was uh, using stimulus, monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus. I think they the, did the 15 uh, uh, stimulus in the last uh, 30 years and they still have little growth in, in Japan. Do you think that will be the norm in Western countries, uh, very low growth because of the bad policies? I think there's some evidence for that. I think Europe increasingly is trapped in this uh, slow, slow growth like Japan. As I said, Canada has been, despite all this stimulus, we're posted the worst decade we've seen since the 1930s. The one exception to this has been the United States. The United States has put up some half-decent growth numbers. They've been able to break out of this. Most countries are stuck in the range of 1%, 2%. The U.S., the last few years, they've been able to put up 2 to 3%. And I think it's partly because they've been focusing on supply side, not just short-term stimulus to uh, demand, but they've been trying to boost business investment, reduce regulations, reduce taxes, to, reduce taxes. So uh, with the supply side approach, they've been able to create a little more. Uh, on the other hand, that they are still running very large government deficits of nearly a trillion dollars. So. Um, you know, the U.S. hasn't uh, discovered a, uh, a perfect model, but I think they're showing enough progress that other countries, I think, should be looking at them and saying, what is it they're doing right that we should be thinking about doing as well? So, uh, Philippe, if we can explain to our viewers, uh, low interest rate, we're seeing artificially low interest rate right now. The real negative impact on that uh, for, you know, it, it's helping government because, you know, they can borrow money and it's very cheap, but at the same time, it's not efficient. What they're doing with, with, with money, as you're saying in Canada, we are spending for the grocery and not to invest in infrastructure or things that will be there for the future mm -hmm. and for future generations. But the negative impact of very uh, low, artificially low interest rate, uh, the distortion that is created in the economy, what kind of uh, distortion? Because uh, we cannot, we don't, we don't promote saving doing that. No, and uh, because we don't promote savings, we end up limiting investment. There's a very close relationship between the amount of saving and the amount of investing in an economy. So one reason we've seen investment decline all throughout the major industrial nations is low interest rates. But low interest rates have other insidious effects too. It encourages us, for example, to overinvest in housing. Yeah. It encourages governments to think that, oh, they can continue to spend and accumulate debt and there's no consequences. It encourages this broad trend to more debt in the economy that we started talking about at the beginning. But it creates other specific problems. For example, um, everybody understands that there's uh, defined benefit pension plans have virtually disappeared in the private sector. Yeah. One reason they've disappeared is that because for companies, they're just too expensive. Uh, pension plans require a real rate of return in the long term of three, four, five percent. Instead, the real rate of return is only one percent. Companies just look at that and go, no, we're not going to, we're going to close our pension plan. 
So in fact, we've ended up removing a, an important safety, uh, part of the safety net for Canadians because of low interest rates. And yet we never talk about the negative impacts of low interest rates. Uh, we only talk about the supposed benefits of the stimulus. And there's a lot of negative impacts, like you said, and also the, ma the malinvestment. Uh, the resources are not well used. You know, uh, uh, corporation can borrow money, but if they don't, if they, they don't uh, invest the money in new equipment or, or new uh, uh, way to be more productive, that won't help the economy at the end. That won't help that corporation at the end. So that may be another, like you just said, negative impact. The real, the real way to create growth and wealth in our country is to promote productivities and, and promote uh, real investment. So, but as you said, you know, <laughs> as a politician, I was a member of parliament for both. And if you don't give the right incentive to the government to do uh, structural reforms, uh, they won't do it. And right now we're looking at the federal government and some provincial government. They don't have any incentive because of these low interest rate to do structural reform like uh, uh, lowering taxes or, or uh, biz flat tax on business or uh, more free trade. The real reform that will create growth and wealth in this country. Do you think that the government will will change their their policies on growth and to be more realistic about the future because all the, these stimulus are not helping the uh, on the long term and we need a structural reform and the tax reform and and other kind of reform that will help to uh, to to build the economy for the future well when you say the government i think you mean the federal government i don't think there's any sign there they're getting the message the good news is, though, that there are signs of progress at the provincial level in Canada. And given the, the very decentralized nature of our uh, federation, what happens at the provinces is at least as, if not more important than at the federal level. For example, a lot of the government debt that we've accumulated is has been at the provincial level. Very large deficits, especially here in, in Ontario, uh, but also Alberta fell into large deficits. Um, and, but they're signed, though, with the recent elections in um, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec, they were getting more uh, governments that are more oriented to getting deficits under control, to bringing in structural reforms, reducing regulation and taxation. Mm -hmm. So I don't think everything's bleak on the policy front. I think even if I don't expect a lot of progress in the federal level, mm -hmm. I think we're beginning to see some real progress at the provincial level. Uh, and I think it shows up, for example, in Quebec. I mean, Quebec has posted extremely good growth rates. Yeah. They're running consistently large deficits. Uh, their, uh, their, the business sector, is, their biggest problem, if anything, is just finding more workers. There's a real shortage. Well, you said the Quebec government, so. they're, they're, they're in surplus right now. Uh, are That's they? right. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. But they want to control and they are controlling the deficit and they want to control the debt. And that's, uh, yeah. that's important. Uh, yeah. And I think that actually there's been a consensus in Quebec going back to the 1998 Bouchard budget yeah. of generally running a surplus, except in the most extreme circumstances like at the worst of the 2008-2009 recession. Uh, so I think there's there's a consensus on that in Quebec that we have to in run surpluses and invest in the future. And hopefully we'll begin to see more and more of that type of thinking in provinces like Ontario and Alberta, which until recently have been running very large deficits. And except, the, except at the federal level, because uh, what I'm seeing from the, the Trudeau government and the finance minister is 
for them, they are spending money right now. We're not in a recession. The deficit will be around $15 billion. And like you said, it it, it is not working to create uh, long-term... Uh, not only not working, I think there's a negative impact to the federal government uh, running deficits because it sends the message to Canadians that not only are there not risks in debt, but it's good for the economy somehow. Uh, and uh, so I think it's important that we focus on examples, especially like Quebec, where we see that we can have strong economic growth and budgetary surpluses. That sends the opposite message. It, it shows that uh, um, deficits not only are not stimulative, but in fact uh, may have a negative side to them. So if we can see the move towards these types of policies in Ontario and Alberta also begin to pay off, maybe that message will get through bro more broadly to Canadians that the, the wisdom, the supposed wisdom of yeah. the federal finances is in fact uh, might even be a negative force in the economy. Uh, and um, if I look at our country, but if you look around the globe and uh, other our, other Western countries, do you see that um, there's a risk of a recession or, or a, uh, a crash in the stock market? Because you are speaking about bubbles. I think there's a bubble in the stock market, maybe in the bond markets, and it's all about the money that the central banks are creating. And uh, do you think that these bubbles are at risk right now? Well, I think they certainly are at risk. I mean, history has shown, I've studied recessions all of my professional life. And one of the major conclusions that comes out of it is that when we're in the middle of a recession, we adopt policies that introduce distortions, especially into the financial and monetary system, that in the short term may actually alleviate the recession, but in the long term begin to create problems that eventually blow up into major problems. Uh, you can go back to 1975 and almost every recession has its origins in actions taken to fight the previous recession. So if you extrapolate that, in 2008, 2009, we undertook, uh, in most major industrial nations, a really extreme experiment with, uh, especially with monetary policy, in a lot of countries, negative interest rates, not just low interest rates, but actual negative interest rates, quantitative easing, large deficits. So we're carrying on quite the experiment here. Uh, the track record suggests that this is not going to end well. Uh, we're already, but you can't say, you know, this year, next year, it's going to end. But we do know we've introduced a lot of distortions. We're carrying on uh, quite a risky experiment. Uh, the history of economics suggests that uh, we will, this will end in tears. Usually when the central banks are creating money, fiat money, uh, it's uh, going, uh, it, it has a, an impact on inflation. And right now, the inflation in Canada and in other countries, it is not so high. Is, is, is it because the definition of inflation is not the right one or the way that we calculated inflation, it's not, uh, it's not the right way to do it? Uh, the central banks, they have an inflation target of 2% and the inflation is very low, but it's supposed to be, if you look at IEC and other economists, when you, when the central bank is uh, using quantitative easing or low interest rate, usually, uh, the inter the inflation was go up will go up. So what what is your uh, your view on that? 
Well, let's clarify what central banks have been up to. They haven't been creating fiat money. What they've been doing with quantitative easing is they've been buying bonds, they've been buying assets, and in, in the hope of, well, not just the hope, they have bid up the prices of assets, bonds, stocks. The Bank of Japan, for example, went right into the stock market and bought stocks. That's the, the most extreme example of quantitative easing. But central banks have been very aggressive in bidding up the price of assets. The hope was that we would make some people rich and these rich people would then go out and uh, spend money. Well, it didn't. We did increase inequality. We did create a lot of rich people. How Unfortunately, they didn't spend it. So we didn't have, so what we have on the one hand is we created a lot of asset price inflation, but we didn't create inflation as measured by the conventional consumer price index. So uh, that's something the Bank for International Settlements, for example, which is the central bank to central banks, they've been saying that our definition, the, the definition that central banks use for inflation is a little too limited. We have to broaden this away from more than just CPI. We should be incorporating some measures of asset price inflation. If you do that, then you would say, yes, we have created more inflation than conventionally measured by the CPI. Okay, so yeah, so the real inflation is higher than the what uh, the Bank of Canada is telling us because they don't take into account the asset inflation and all that. So if you look at the global picture, uh, we we have inflation in this country right now and and in other countries. That's uh, yes, and if you ask a young person, you know they will tell you, yeah, I can't get into the housing market, especially in Toronto and Vancouver. I can't buy stocks. I can't buy uh, these various assets. They're simply too pricey for me. So uh, we've created some uh, intergenerational problems. So, so I think the future is not looking so great. If you, we may have a recession, and uh, and what will what will be the solution at the end? We, the the central banks and government, because in your paper you're saying you know they're looking at the short term. They are stimulus. It was supposed to be good at a short term when we have a recession. I'm speaking about fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. But now it's not only on the short term. They are doing that for the last 10 years. Right. So what will be their reaction if we have a crisis from different governments? Do you think that they will have the right incentive to do structural monetary reform uh, or, or uh, structural uh, budgetary or fiscal reform. What must be the real solution to all that? Right. Well, I think the reflex of governments, as we've seen from uh, how people are talking about confronting this most recent slowdown in the global economy, is the reflexive solution is let's go back to monetary and fiscal stimulus. Hopefully, though, people, smarter people, will look at the longer term picture and say, no, this hasn't worked for 10 years. Let's stop doubling down on policies that have not been effective. And instead, let's look at those parts of the world where growth is better, such as the United States, such as Quebec. And what can we learn from these examples? And hopefully people will realize short term stimulus, demand stimulus it won't work. What we need to do is to focus more on the supply side of the economy, on adopting policies that will increase the productive side of the economy, and then boost innovation in the long term. So there's a wide range of policies that would do this, for example, uh, less regulation, less tax, um, interprovincial trade barriers, for example, another one. Uh, so there's a wide range of things that we could do in the supply side that we haven't done for 10 years because we've been too focused on, sh on counting on short-term demand stimulus to work. 
But do you think that uh, if or when a recession will happen, uh, people will say, you know, that's a capitalist system that doesn't work and we may have some socialist government. Do we have a risk to go further to more government control and central banking uh, uh, doing policies and, and, and action that are uh, not in a favor of the long-term growth? That's a concern, and that was one reason why I wrote this paper in 2016 for the McDonald-Laurie Institute. I was worried that if there is another downturn, that, you know, you look at the rise of Bernie Sanders and yeah. people like that, and then there is an increasing criticism of capitalism. What I was trying to say in that 2016 paper is, no, what's gone wrong since 2008 is we've been conducting this, frankly, uh, experiment with monetary and fiscal policy. And if this doesn't turn well, we shouldn't be blaming the capitalist system. We should be looking at these very risky and unproven uh, policies we've adopted since 2008 and 2009 in the monetary and fiscal area, and we should be pointing the finger at that and saying, no, this not only did this not boost growth in the short term, which was the goal, but it increased our vulnerability in the longer term. And we should be pointing the finger directly at uh, risky monetary and fiscal policies, not the capitalist system. Yeah, uh, I think you're right about that. It's easy for uh, some politician to uh, speak and say, you know, uh, this is not working. This is the capitalist system, but it is it is not that. The free market is always, I think, uh, working if you let people alone to do what they want to do without interfering with bad policies. And uh, and now you have corporations that are because low interest rate are, are, are uh, it's very easy for a corporation to borrow money. They are borrowing money, but they don't use that money efficiently. Uh, we call them zombie corporation. Uh, you said Bombardier and other corporation. So that's, <laughs> that's why I don't, I hope that the central bank will have the courage to increase, uh, interest rate, uh, in the near future. Uh, but if they're doing that, uh, I've read in your paper that the bankruptcy uh, rate is very high in our country, so that won't help. They're kind of a squeeze. Uh, they, 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 they were trying that experiment for 10 years, yeah. and now they don't have any rooms to, to, to manage if something yeah. happened. Yeah, the time to normalize interest rates is probably past. I mean, with the global economy slowing, it's it's going to be very difficult to get uh, central banks, particularly the Bank of Canada, to to inter raise interest rates in that environment. But that doesn't mean that we're out of bullets. It doesn't mean we can't. Uh, what the Bank of Canada should be doing, for example, is putting pressure on governments and saying we will only keep interest rates low if you adopt things that improve the supply side. That might be a way out for, for everyone, give people an incentive to adopt better policies. But I, I was surprised by the governor of the Bank of Canada a couple of months ago said to the government the opposite. He said, you know, we, we did everything that we can do as a, a banker and a central banker. Now it's the government that must spend more money and more deficit. That was coming from this our central bank, and he was arguing and asking the federal government to spend more money that we don't have, and instead of like you just said, saying to the government, you know, you have solutions to do some structural fiscal reforms, and you must do it. I was very disappointed from the government saying that. First of all is supposed to be independent from the government and from politician. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and he, he was boosting and promoting uh, budget deficit in Ottawa. Yeah. 
I, th I think this governor has been in, uh, you know, a very disappointing term. Uh, he was brought in to replace Mark Carney. Yeah. Mark Carney is, you know, one of the leading voices for a dovish, very soft monetary policy. I think with the, um, the government, when they appointed Paulus to replace him, were hoping for some change. Uh, but that just may reflect that, you know, one person, not even a governor, can change the thinking of an institution. So there may just be that the forces uh, for lax monetary policy, not just within the Bank of Canada, but within the whole monetary policy establishment throughout the industrial world, are so strong that it's going to be very difficult for one person to, to resist that. But all the more reason to uh, continue for people to continue to point out that a these policies didn't work; they failed, and b that you know there are uh, governments and situations in the world where the economy appears to be improving, and they're not relying on short-term uh, monetary stimulus. And, and hopefully, eventually, central banks will hear that voice. We've heard some other very important, renowned international economists raise questions about conventional economic thinking. I'm thinking of Lawrence Summers. I'm thinking of William White. Uh, the Bank for International Settlements has been very critical of central bank uh, policies. And obviously, you know, central banks have to hear that message. Hopefully, they will continue to hear it and they'll pay more and more attention to it. And we'll see better policies going forward. But it's too bad that you're one of the only economists in Canada who's speaking about that and alerting other mainstream economists and the media. Uh, we don't have the discussion in the mainstream media. We don't have the discussion in Parliament. Uh, both established political parties, the liberal, the conservative, are for deficit and uh, they didn't have the courage to speak the truth and telling people that, no, it's, it's not going well. We need to do that. We need to tackle the deficit. We need to balance the budget. Uh, but, but it's, it's great that you are having that position. And it's too bad that other economists, when we are listening to news or reading the news, it's all about deficit. It's, it's good. And, but it is not. And you show it in your paper with a, a historical review of other countries. And not just in the paper. I mean, I've also written some op-eds, which I encourage people to look at in the National Post pointing out just how growth has failed over the last 10 years, how these policies haven't worked. Hopefully, as some of that message will get through uh, before, because I, what concerns me most is what I don't want to happen is that the global economy goes into recession and that Canada then suffers the way a lot of countries suffered in 2008, 2009. And we learned the hard way that debt creates a lot of vulnerabilities. I think it would be much better if we learn voluntarily to this lesson, uh, because if we don't, I suspect we'll, be, uh, we'll learn it the hard way. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for your work. And if our people want to uh, read more and know more about your work, uh, they can go to the uh, uh, McDonald Law Institute or, or uh, Fraser Institute. I think under your name, there's a lot of your studies over there. And uh, as you said, you are writing in the National Post on a kind of a regular basis. So uh, is there other places that they can uh, find your work? Or uh, I suppose on my website, Philip Cross Economics, that I have some um, okay. centralized work there. That's great. So I want to thank you very much for uh, having that discussion with us. And the goal of that uh, interview was to show to people that there's another side of the story. 
that the main media are not covering about deficit and debts. And I think that, like you said in your paper, that's not the solution. We need to change. And I hope that people can understand that uh, message. It's very important for the future of our country, but also not our country, because it's happening in other countries also. Uh, monetary uh, stimulus and fiscal stimulus. Uh, and we need to have real growth in our country. And uh, I want to thank you for your work. It's uh, helping uh, me and uh, our viewers to understand a little bit more uh, the situation in our country. So thank you for taking your time and thank you for being at my show. Well, thank you for having me, Maxine. <laughs> thank you, Philippe. I appreciate that. All right. There is a very dangerous situation developing in Canada right now. A tiny minority of demonstrators are blocking streets, railways and ports in different regions of our country. They demonstrate in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose the construction of a natural gas pipeline on the territory they claim as theirs in British Columbia. If this continues, it could paralyze several sectors that crucially depend on transportation. For the demonstrators, this is a conflict between Canadian colonialism and the rights of indigenous people. But that's not true. The conflict is, first of all, between different groups within First Nations communities. The five Wet'suwet'en elected Ben Council support the natural gas pipeline. Their communities will benefit from it. It will bring jobs and economic development. It's only the hereditary chiefs who oppose it. These chiefs may be part of a traditional indigenous governance, but this is a reaction way to govern a community and a society, like we had centuries ago. We cannot give it political legitimacy. The conflict is always and also between all of Canada and a mod of radical Greens activists who want to bring us back to a pre-modern, pre-industrial society. They want to shut down our energy sector. They want our economy to collapse because they think that's what it takes to save the planet. Canada is a modern democratic country based on the rule of law. We cannot allow a tiny minority of reactionary fanatics to paralyze our economy, or else we can say goodbye to our social peace and our prosperity. In this first edition of Political Circus, I have to talk about the Conservative Party leadership race. Did you see the first meme published by the frontrunner Peter McKay? There is no better illustration of how politics in Canada has become silly and superficial. Let's look at it. Viewer discretion is advised. If you are prone to epileptic seizures, please do not watch. So that's Peter's big vision for Canada. What about specific ideas, principles and policies? Well, Peter thinks pride parades are important and he will march in one in Toronto. Apparently, marching in pride parades is the most important issue right now for the Conservative Party. Andrew Scheer chose not to march in a pride parade on personal religious grounds and the left-wing media decided that it was unacceptable and that he 
was a bigot because of it. Anybody who does not believe what they believe or do what they do is a bigot, a racist, intolerant. I marched in a pride parade some years ago and I don't plan to march in one again. But also, I don't need to do that to prove anything. Frankly, I do not care what the left will say. Look, a parade is a parade. And no, Peter, it's not important. What is important is to ensure that the state regards everyone equally to ensure we all have the same rights. No need to march in a parade to govern well. You do need good policies on the basis of clear principles. The politically correct left is more interested in emotional symbols and using them to attack the right. Meanwhile, the intellectually and morally corrupt Conservative Party is too weak to fight back. You like what you see? Subscribe to our YouTube channel and don't hesitate to make a tax-deductible donation by clicking on the link below. Watch other videos. See you next week.